Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In Acts chapter 2, we have the description of the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. It was in Acts chapter 2 that Luke described the events that unfolded as the church was born, as the people, the disciples, were born again of the Spirit by the restoration of the Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam and Eve. This was a historical event. It was the pivotal moment in history when the Lord our God finally provided the solution to the very problem of humanity. It is the fulfillment of the prophecy that was described in Acts chapter 1, when the Lord Jesus prophesied that the Holy Spirit would come just a few days from the moment when he was speaking to his disciples. He told them to wait in Jerusalem because it was just going to be a matter of days before the Holy Spirit would be restored to them. They would then be born again, born as a new creation in Christ Jesus, and they would begin to walk in the newness of life that was defined by the new covenant. These events are described in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, referring to the disciples. The day of Pentecost was a very important festival. It was called the Feast of Weeks. In this translation, it's called the Feast of Pentecost. It was a very important festival as it was the second festival in the year that the Jews were required to be in Jerusalem. Everyone, the entire nation of Israel, was in Jerusalem or in the surrounding communities at this time of the year. Everyone was there for Passover and the Feast of First Fruits, and then they went home, but then they would have to return to the Feast of Weeks in order to present an offering, but also to present themselves there in Jerusalem, as was required by the Law of Moses. And so by law, everyone in the nation of Israel was there in Jerusalem when Christ Jesus died and rose again from the dead. Everyone was there. And then for this next festival, everyone returned and was also there in Jerusalem to witness this event. They would be in the local vicinity so that news would spread and they would be well informed of this tremendous miracle that has occurred, the fulfillment of a prophecy that the Lord Jesus gave and also the birth of the church that was endorsed by the living God as he performed a miracle in their midst when this event took place. And so everyone was there, assembled together, observing the Feast of Pentecost. We can continue to read in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. There was definitely a miracle taking place that had physical manifestations so that the people knew that a miracle was occurring. They were able to observe and hear the Holy Spirit of God coming within their midst. 
and there was a visual sign that was given that had the appearance as of tongues of fire that rested on each one of the disciples. That was the visible manifestation that the people were able to report with regards to the events as they were unfolding here. But then in verse 4, Luke describes that they were able to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The proper translation of this word that is translated as tongues is actually languages. That is the most correct translation in our modern vernacular. That is the best word to use. And so the best way to read this would be to say that they spoke with other languages as the Spirit intervened in this moment to speak within and through them in a miraculous way. Now, there are, of course, several interpretations of verse 4. Depending upon what church or denomination you are a part of, there are various opinions with regards to verse 4. There are various opinions with regards to what is actually taking place here, what really is the miracle. But the arguments usually sound something like this. The arguments normally have to do with, is the gift of tongues for today Or is it not for today? That's normally what people are arguing. If the gift of tongues is for today, then we should expect to see it manifested within our churches to some degree. And if it is not for today, then we should not see this gift manifested in our fellowships and in our assemblies as we interact with one another and we see the church develop and grow. This is the common argument that people are having with one another with regards to this subject. The one thing, however, that very few people seem to be asking is just what is this gift of tongues? What is this manifestation of the Holy Spirit? Just what is it? Regardless of whether or not it is for today, we first need to define precisely what it is. Otherwise, we could be trying to establish truth on the basis of some personal experience outside of the scriptures, and that can be extremely hazardous. Now, I have done a series on the subject of tongues. It is a series of four programs, and so I'm not going to get into the details of this subject in this broadcast. Instead, I'm going to defer you to those broadcasts if you are truly interested in this subject and how several of the common questions related to it can be addressed. For example, there are many places in the scriptures where this subject is addressed, it is presented, and I'm simply not going to walk through the scriptures to define what I believe is being expressed in these passages, such as in 1 Corinthians 14 and others. For details such as these, I'm going to defer you to the series of programs that I did for further study. Instead, in this broadcast, I would just like to walk through the scriptures and see what is described here in Acts chapter 2. And so, continuing to read in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, what we do have is we have a very good description of what the gift of languages or the gift of tongues really is. For example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? In other words, the people were assembling together, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, 
Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own languages or our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? Now, there was no confusion about what they were saying. There was no confusion about what the disciples were actually saying. That was not what they were perplexed about. What they were perplexed about, what they were confused about, what really got their attention was the fact that they understood exactly what was being said. Not only did they understand what was being said, but they each understood in their own individual languages. That was what was being described here in Acts chapter 2. Now, does that mean that the disciples were speaking simultaneously in multiple languages? I honestly do not believe that. I believe that the disciples were speaking in a language that they understood. They were openly speaking to one another, proclaiming what the Lord Jesus had done for them and what the Lord Jesus was doing through the restoration of the Holy Spirit in this miraculous event. They were proclaiming that. They were talking about it. They were amazed at what was taking place. But that they would know precisely what they were saying, there was no confusion among them. However... From the recipient's point of view, we have many people who are hearing the disciples speak, and they are hearing in a language that the disciples are not speaking in. In other words, there is a miraculous translation that is taking place somewhere between the disciples speaking in their own language and the other people hearing in another language. There is a miraculous intervention that is taking place as the Lord our God intervened in their lives at this moment, intervened to permit the hearers to hear in a different language than what the disciples were speaking in. That is the only way that I can see that the disciples can speak in one language, and yet there were several people, many people, who could hear simultaneously in a different language. That somewhere in between there was a miraculous interpretation taking place, so that those who did not believe in the Lord Jesus would hear the testimony of the disciples, would understand the testimony of the disciples very clearly, so that there would be no confusion with regards to what the disciples were saying. This was a miracle to enable clear and understandable communication between the disciples and the others, between people who spoke one language and other people who spoke in another language. That is the miracle. It is a miracle of God to enable people to have clear communication with one another. That is what I see described here in Acts chapter 2. These are the events of the restoration of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are many people who would strongly disagree with this conclusion. There are many people who sincerely believe that this was a miraculous event to the extent where not everyone necessarily understood either what they were saying or what they were hearing, because that is what is manifested in many congregations in our culture today. And so people will take the manifestations of what they see in their churches today and superimpose these opinions, these perspectives, these experiences onto Acts chapter 2 in order to try and interpret what is described here in Acts chapter 2, suggesting that what they are experiencing right now is the same thing that the early church was experiencing in Acts chapter 2. But what I am telling you is that there is absolutely no way whatsoever 
that what people are experiencing in the churches that we have in our culture today has anything to do with what the disciples and the people here in Jerusalem were experiencing as described in Acts chapter 2, because there was absolutely no confusion with regards to what was being said or what was being heard, absolutely no confusion whatsoever. And to suggest that there was any confusion whatsoever would be to completely take away from the miracle that is described here in Acts chapter 2. I sincerely believe that those who try to interpret this chapter on the basis of what we see in our culture today take away, they take away, they distort what is being described here in Acts chapter 2 and the miracle of the enablement of clear communication between those who are now born again of the Spirit to those who are not born again of the Spirit who can receive the Spirit as a free gift if they will believe in the Lord Jesus. That's what we have here. We have the first evangelistic event where the Lord our God intervenes, saves an initial group of people, resurrects them from the dead, and uses the moment to evangelistically reach out to those who are around them so that they also may be encouraged to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. That was the miracle of Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Again in verse 12, And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. In other words, there were several people who did not believe that it was a miracle of God, but thought that it was just some odd occurrence of some kind. So as we continue to read in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, what we see is we see the discourse of Peter, Peter's sermon, when he describes to the people what was taking place. He told them about the fulfillment of the prophecy that was given by our God to the extent where they are now experiencing the fulfillment of the prophecy. And then as we continue to read all the way to verse 37, we see their response. This is Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37, where it says, Now when they heard this, referring to what Peter told them, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Continuing in verse 39, For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Peter responds to their question of what should they do in light of the miracle that they were seeing. He responded to that by telling them that they are to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and so that they could receive the Holy Spirit. Now, please understand the historical context of when Peter is saying this. This is very important to see. The historical context of when Peter is saying this is before Acts chapter 11. This is very important because in Acts chapter 11, the church discovered that a Gentile could actually be saved. Before that, they did not believe that a Gentile could be saved unless they first became a Jew. What was the sacrament that was well known in the culture of Israel to become a Jew? It was baptism. 
The Pharisees established baptism as a means of converting a Gentile to Judaism. John the Baptist took the baptism of the Pharisees and baptized Jews to proclaim that a Jew is just as unclean as a Gentile and needed to repent of their sins just as a Gentile did, that everyone needed to turn away from their sins and turn to the law of Moses, a life devoted to the law of God to be a good Jew. That was the message of baptism. And then to be baptized in the name of Jesus is to be converted not only by repenting and turning away from your sins and turning to the law of Moses, but in addition to doing so, also believing that the Lord Jesus is actually the Messiah. That's what Peter is telling them, that if they would repent from their sins, in other words, they would turn away from their sins, turn to the law, then be baptized in water to be identified with the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, then he says they would receive the Holy Spirit. That was the message that he communicated. It is the appropriate message for him to communicate because that was what he understood at this point in his maturity in Christ Jesus. That's what he understood. That's what they all understood because that was the scope of their understanding of the gospel. It's very important to see this in order to appreciate the transitions that Peter and the other apostles go through over the course of time as we see the events unfold in the history of the development of the early church. This is a very important thing to understand. Now, with regards to the forgiveness of sins, it certainly wasn't baptism that provided them with the forgiveness of sins. The Lord Jesus died for their sins already on the cross. Peter just simply did not have a full understanding of what that meant. He assumed that you could only receive the forgiveness of sins if you repented from your sins and you were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The forgiveness of sins had already been given. The forgiveness of sins is certainly not salvation. It's what made salvation possible. Peter completes his explanation at the end of verse 38 when he says, "...and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." It is the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit that we experience salvation. Forgiveness is not salvation. Forgiveness is what makes salvation possible. Salvation is the restoration of the Holy Spirit because that was the problem between us and our God. The problem between us and our God was not just the fact that we had sin or that we were sinners. The primary problem was that the sin caused death in humanity and he needed to restore that life within us. Now what's important about the complete forgiveness of sins is that according to the law of sin and death, sin will cause that life to leave. But in this case, because the Lord Jesus died for the entire sins of the world, there is now no sin that will cause that life to depart from within us. That's the importance of the forgiveness that we have and why we must rest in the complete forgiveness that we now have in Christ Jesus. Now again, with regards to the subject of baptism, I have another series of programs on the subject of baptism that I will defer you to. I will not try to get into that subject in this broadcast. Instead, I will proceed and continue on and show you that many people did believe in Christ Jesus after Peter's testimony. Beginning in verse 39, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Continuing in verse 41, So then those who had received his word, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who were being saved." those who were being saved in the context of those who were believing and responding to the message of the gospel that was communicated to them as the people were perpetuating the truth of the gospel as they understood it. This is the beginning of the early church, starting out with a basic fundamental that we are to receive the Holy Spirit. But as I was describing earlier, there were some things that were difficult for them to understand, some things that were difficult for them to appreciate. They had not yet realized the full implications of the forgiveness of sins that they had received as a result of the death of Christ Jesus on the cross. It was much later in the transitions that the church went through that they finally began to discover the implications of forgiveness, especially as it related to their daily life in devotion to the Mosaic Law. You see, when the church was first saved, it was believed that a person would have to commit themselves to Judaism, which means that they would commit themselves to a life of obedience to the Mosaic Law. It wasn't until many years later that the question of whether or not a person should be living in devotion to the Mosaic Law even came up. This was described later in Acts chapter 15, when the council in Jerusalem assembled to discuss the question of whether or not a Gentile would have to be circumcised and live in obedience to the law of Moses. So they certainly did not have a very good understanding of how they were going to walk in their daily life in Christ Jesus, but they did know enough in order to proceed, and that's the important thing, is that they knew just enough in order to begin as a baby in Christ, they were able to begin to grow. They were made alive by the Spirit, and living things grow. That is a distinctive characteristic of something that's alive. They were alive in the Spirit, made alive by the Holy Spirit being restored within them. And through that restoration of the Holy Spirit, they were able to begin to mature and grow in their faith. And they did, and we can see that as we continue to go through the book of Acts. In the church today, we have very similar struggles in the growth that we experience when we come to know the Lord Jesus. It's a very similar struggle. Today, people will often go into the book of Acts, and they will see these events unfold as the early church began. When they do that, what happens is is that we look at the passages that describe what the early church believed, and we look at them in context of what we understand today, which in general is wrong because it simply is outside of the proper cultural context. Let me give you an example. It's very easy for us to go into these passages in the book of Acts, look at these passages, and say, okay, the first thing you must do is repent from all of your sins, which means you need to turn away from all of your sins, and you need to promise or commit yourself to never commit these sins ever again. That's the proper understanding of the word repentance, or at least turn away from them, at least from the perspective of you do not want to commit them anymore. You do not desire 
to commit them anymore, even though we will certainly struggle with committing them. That's certainly a struggle that we all deal with in our daily life, but that's generally avoided until later on when we try to mature in our faith. So then what we do is we look at the next passage in the scriptures and say, once you have repented, then you should be baptized. If you are baptized in water, then that is the means by which you appropriate the forgiveness that is being offered to you. This is what many people believe. I certainly do not believe this, but I'm not afraid to say what people teach. This is something that people do believe. Many people do believe this, that you appropriate the forgiveness of God through your first act of obedience, and then you can receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some also say that you can receive the forgiveness of God first and then be baptized and then you will receive the Holy Spirit. And others teach that you can first receive the forgiveness of sins by faith and then you can receive the Holy Spirit by faith and then you should be baptized as your first act of obedience. There are many variations, but they all exclude one very important item. And that is that these terms, that these sacraments had deep meaning to the people in that time era, and we're completely ignoring that very important reality. That to them, this is how they would have heard the message of Peter. They would hear the message of, repent from your sins, turn back to the Mosaic law, be baptized in order to renew your commitment to Judaism. Even if you are a Jew, then you are to still be baptized, as they all were, to recognize the fact that they were just as unclean as a Gentile. If they are a Gentile, then this is their means of converting to Judaism. Then, if they believe in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, they can receive the forgiveness that he has offered to them. They could receive his forgiveness, and then they could receive the Holy Spirit. That's how they perceived the message that was communicated by Peter. But what we know, as was clearly revealed later by the Apostle Paul, is that the Lord Jesus died for the sins of the world. The sin issue between humanity and the living God was over when Christ Jesus died on the cross. And he is now offering to anyone who will receive it the free gift of the life of God that will remain within us eternally because there is no sin that will cause that life to leave. And that is the gospel. Just as the early church struggled with the question of just what is the gospel back then, so the church today also struggles with the same question of just what is the gospel. The gospel is very simple, and that is that Christ Jesus died for the sins of the world so that he could offer to us the free gift of the life of God that will remain within us eternally, and there is no sin that will cause that life to leave. Everything else was the infrastructure that the Lord our God used in order to convey this simple good news to us in terms that we would be able to understand and relate to in the context of the transition from the Old Covenant to the New. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net 
that is livinggodministries.net. Thank you, man.